This episode of the Proceedings Podcast is brought to you by the members of the U.S. Naval Institute. Our members write, debate, and discuss key issues that ultimately strengthen the Navy, Marine Corps, and Coast Guard. Benefits include a subscription to our award-winning Proceedings Magazine, discounts to over a 1,000 titles from books published by the Naval Institute Press, and graphic novels from Dead Reckoning, a discounted subscription to Naval History Magazine, special invitations to conferences and events, and access to 146 years of archival information such as historic photos, oral histories, and so much more. For more, go to usni.org join. Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Ward Carroll, Naval Institute's Director of Outreach and Marketing. Joining me for this special episode is the Proceedings Editor-in-Chief, Bill Hamlet. Hello, Bill. Hey, Ward. We have a very special guest today, so why don't we get right to him? Yeah, our guest today is the Honorable Thomas Modley, former Acting Secretary of the Navy from November 2019 through April 2020, and previously had served as the Undersecretary of the Navy from 2017 through 2019. Tom is a 1983 graduate of the U.S. Naval Academy. He served on active duty as a helicopter pilot and was an assistant professor of political science at the U.S. Air Force Academy. He holds a master's degree in government from Georgetown University and an MBA with honors from Harvard Business School. And earlier this month, he wrote a commentary for proceedings titled Lessons Learned at the Helm of the Department of the Navy. Secretary Modley, welcome to the show. Thanks. Uh, Thanks, Bill. Thanks, Ward. Thanks for having me on. So I want to remind our audience that uh, you became the acting secretary of the Navy after Secretary Spencer resigned in 2019. Uh, Shortly after that, you uh, appeared at a Naval Institute event called Defense Forum Washington. That was in uh, early December 2019. And uh, I remember a couple of things you you mentioned there. One was that you were very focused on China. And so our listeners and and proceedings readers are well tuned to what's happening with uh, Chinese military modernization and uh, and the military buildup. And you also said, you know, it was kind of a surprise to you to become the acting secretary of the Navy and you plan to drive it like you stole it until someone uh, took it away from you. Yeah, I think that, uh, you know, my whole philosophy coming into the job was uh, we really had no idea how long I would be in the job. And, uh, you know, it was sort of an odd political environment. It was an odd departure for Secretary Spencer. He was uh, caught up in the controversy surrounding Petty Officer Gallagher. Uh, which was uh, unfortunately had the White House, invo- the White House involvement, the president's personal involvement, and he, uh, you know, uh, came to a crossroads with the president and, and uh, did not want to do what the president wanted him to do, and uh, so ended up leaving. And uh, so it was an unusual circumstance. And rolling into an election year, no one really knows how long someone's going to be in the job, uh, because you know, generally speaking, the Congress doesn't like to do confirmation hearings during a an election year for someone who may or may not be in the job for very long. So the way I looked at it was that I, I'm given a lot of advice from a lot of other people that I knew was just to, you know, to, to seize the reins and do everything that I could uh, to advance some of the things that I had been pushing as the under, some of the things that Richard had been pushing as the secretary, and, um, and really uh, try to advance those things in the final year of the administration. I remember receiving a text probably my first or second day as the acting from Jerry Hendricks, who I think you all know, uh, who said to me, he goes, hey, Tom, the the average uh, tenure of an acting secretary of the Navy over the course of history is 110 days. And so uh, I took that and I, I went home that weekend and I basically did a list of 110 things that I wanted to get done in those 110 days. And I just started 
check checking off the list. And I just always felt that you're not really there in those positions to keep the seat warm for the next guy, even though the president had made it clear that he was going to nominate Ambassador Braithwaite for the position. No one really knew whether or not that was ever going to happen or uh, whether or not uh, he was going to get through confirmation, given the histrionics of our political process. And particularly in, in this administration, it was pretty um, fever pitched almost all four years. So I just sort of decided that it was uh, important to just advance these things and not waste the year uh, or not waste the six months or five months or whatever time I was given. And um, so uh, that's what I did. So I remember among the things you mentioned at that DFW event was you wanted to get a, an actionable 355 ship plan uh, to the White House. Uh, so let's let's talk about that and what you were able to do and what you found uh, that landscape to look like. You know, one of the things that uh, that frustrated me over my previous two years as the under is that um, we had this commitment from, well, in the law from Congress, the pledge that we were going to build a 355 ship Navy. The president ran on the platform of building a 350 ship Navy. And uh, in the previous two years, I never, I never saw a plan for it. I, it. There just wasn't anything that was realistic that to me would accomplish that goal in what I believe was a strategically relevant time frame. I think all the numbers we were looking at, you know, initially it was 2052 that we would get there. Then they sort of we sort of pulled it back into the mid 2030s. Um, but I think those were just numbers games, to be honest. And, you know, there's a there's a there's a good song by Jimi Hendrix called Room Full of Mirrors. And it was like a room full of mirrors, like everyone was looking at each other, believing the same things. But there wasn't you know, no one was really willing to stand up and smash the mirror and, and say, hey, look, we really need to do this. And we need to do it in a strategically relevant time frame, which I believe is 10 years. Um, so let's get together and let's get a plan going that we can present to Secretary Esper and and to the president and uh, build some build some consensus around it in the final year of the administration. So, as you all know, the, the budget process is a really lengthy, onerous process, and you have to start layering this in pretty early on if you want to try to achieve it in 10 years. So that was that was one of my primary objectives was to try to get that done. And we had also sent a, a letter to the commandant and the CNO that we wanted them to work together on this plan, that we wanted it to be an integrated naval force structure. And that's where the name INSPA came from, Integrated Naval Force Structure Assessment. And so they, for the first time, uh, they worked together, uh, uh, Eric Smith and uh, General Lieutenant General Eric Smith and his team, and uh, uh, Vice Admiral Jim Kilby and his team, they worked hand in glove on developing this new integrated force structure assessment. And what it did, it was a pretty pretty significant departure from the 2016 force structure assessment that was was the sort of the ground, you know, the ground base ground level for the 355 ship Navy. This was very innovative. There were new ship classes that were introduced. There was a bigger emphasis on the small surface combatants than had been in the previous uh, force structure. And then, of course, the introduction of unmanned vessels, uh, unmanned uh, systems that no one was really contemplating in 2016 um, as, as being a significant part of the fleet. And so that all got layered in. And around the January, February timeframe, I felt we had a pretty good plan. And, and that's... Uh, uh, and I wanted to be able to take that to the Congress during the budget sessions and the president and and uh, and Secretary Esper uh, felt otherwise and decided to take control of that entire process and took it out of the hands of the Navy and set up a team under 
the uh, Deputy Secretary of Defense, Dave Norquist, uh, to go ahead and look at it. And, you know, it was disappointing to me because uh, I really didn't think that whatever they came up with uh, was going to be a radical departure from what we, what we came up with in the INSFA. And at any rate, uh, there were all these new ship classes that we needed to get going on. I mean, it, it basically, I think, took nine months out of the sales uh, of this effort. And it did it in an election year. And so now I'm, my sense is it's going to be stalled for another year um, until they start looking at it. And that was very unfortunate. I, I was hoping that we could get it out there in January, uh, start promoting it, talking about it, uh, lay it into some of the budget discussions that we were having with the Congress so that they understood. And then spend you know the latter part of the administration really trying to sell it because you really need bipartisan support for something like that. And um, I just felt like when when that was taken out of the Navy's hands, I felt that um, it really just wasted a lot of time. And it's uh, it was unfortunate. Did uh, Secretary Esper talk to you about that, about why he took that decision out of the Navy's hands? Um, he did. And um, I think he and I had a philosophical difference on that. I think uh, he felt like the budget decision. Uh, budget decisions of this magnitude and look the, the obvious thing is when you when you look at this when you're trying to build a navy that's going to be 25 30 percent maybe 40 percent bigger than what we have right now um you can't do that with a flat top line so the money has to come from somewhere and uh that was a question he consistently asked me but tom you know i get it but you know where am i going to get the money and I think that was a rhetorical question because I probably could have answered it for him you know, by saying, you know, take it from the other services. But, you know, because my perspective was, you know, this is a maritime challenge that we've got. Um, and the maritime challenge is getting far more complicated. And uh, we sort of we don't have enough assets out there to, to address it, in my opinion. You know, other services have other opinions about that. But that's sort of the role of the secretary of defense. And the president and the Congress to make those allocations. But if you look across the budget, it's been very much a one-third, one-third, one-third type of break in the budget with very little variation in that over time. And I felt like, you know, the time is now to have a significant variation from that. And um, I think he just wanted more analytics behind that and to be comforted and knowing that he had a third party looking at it rather than just the Navy you know, maybe he was concerned about parochialism, whatever. I I was concerned about time. And so for me, you know, that was that was the thing that was my challenge more than anything else. You know, time is ticking away and we don't have a lot of time to waste. So um, I just wanted to get something out there. And then you could tweak along the margins of it. And I said, the other thing about this plan is that not only is it integrated, is it has to be iterative. It has to be something that we look at and iterate constantly through wargaming and, and, uh, and new scenarios but to lock into something that even within 10 years, you don't know what the strategic context is going to be in 10 years. So we need to build a very flexible fleet, a very distributed fleet. And all those things could have started um, back in January. You know, the path could have started a long time ago. Um, and that's what was frustrating to me. So, you know, look, I I don't fault him. I mean, it's his responsibility ultimately as a secretary of defense to, to make the best decisions with the best information that he can find. And frankly, I, I, I really like Dave Norquist. I think he's a totally straight shooter. So I didn't feel, you know, I didn't feel like uh, I wasn't offended or anything by it, but I just felt like it was, it was uh, a bit of a waste of time um, from my perspective. And, and pretty much, you know, the plan that they came out with this 500 ship plan that they announced at the end of the year you know, they announced it like the week before the election. So, you know, 
essentially who cares at this point. And, and, and so it's going to have to be reworked again. And I just feel like a lot of time was, a lot of time was left on the table that we could have really started building, uh, momentum for, for, for the, the future fleet. And, um, and I, and I think in the, if you look at the model, you look at the numbers, they're, they're really not a radical departure from what the INSFA, uh, numbers were in January. The biggest difference is the unmanned number. And the unmanned number in this study was significantly higher. But again, it wasn't a 10 year plan. It was a, you know, I think their, I think their plan was a 20 year plan or a 25 year plan. Um, and to me, again, you know, it, it loses its relevance if you're looking that far into the future. Um, so. As I'm thinking back to the the demand signal for a 355, which was coincident with your arrival on on in the job, there seemed like there was an opening to break the one third, one third, one third because of the presidential edict and the way it was being socialized. Uh, you know, the Hugh Hewitts of the world um, were saying, "Hey, you guys, Navy, you got to pay attention to what the president wants." So that's where you can go to SecDef and go, yeah, maybe one-third, one-third, one-third needs to be you know, broken at this point in order to please POTUS. But the other thing that complicated that, and, and check me on this, was the existence and the desire to build a sixth branch of the military, the Space Force, right? Doesn't that complicate an already complicated picture? Where did that fit into the mix? Of course. I mean, they need resources. And so um, there wasn't a whole lot of extra top line given to create that. And you know, the Air Force is taking it in the hide for that, <laughs> largely because they're building that whole structure under the Air Force. Um, but yeah, of course, you know that is. I mean, that put that pressurized everything. It pressurized the budget, and uh, as as most things um, do, you know, the the pandemic pressurized the budget because we ended up spending a lot of money on things that we didn't think we'd have to spend it on. The border wall pressurized the budget because the president uh, took some money from the from the defense budget to pay for that. But these were all competing priorities. And, you know, ultimately it's the president's call and Congress's call to decide that. Um, my view was, you know, whatever we have, um, you know, we should, we should use it in the best way possible. So when it was obvious to me that that budget pie wasn't going to get split anymore, I went back to the Navy um, and said, look, you know, I don't know what this study is going to render in nine months or whenever they say it's going to be done. But we need to move out on increasing the shipbuilding budget. And I know we can find it within the Navy budget. So I challenged the Navy to come up with five to seven billion dollars uh, in the fiscal year to start down that path so we could buy a couple more ships. And uh, so they started this stem to stern. I called it the stem to stern review. And uh, I didn't you know, to me, you know, initially there was a lot of gnashing of teeth like, oh, you, you, you can't find that much money. But it's amazing how quickly they were able to find it. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a very small percentage of the overall whatever $210 billion a year budget to, to get, to try and ring out two and a half percent or 3% just to get going on this strategy. And then over time, hopefully that budget pie gets shifted. I didn't think it was a heavy lift at all. And, um, but unfortunately I left before I could see that come to fruition. But my understanding is that secretary Braithwaite did carry that forward and, and um, they were able to come up with it, which is, you know, great news. And I, and I congratulate them for that. So let's fast forward a few months. And it doesn't seem like it was just a year ago. I mean, it seems like it was 20 years ago. But early March, we're at West out in San Diego. Admiral Davidson, Indo-PACOM, is one of our keynote speakers. And he announces that TR is pulling into Da Nang. And mm -hmm. I remember, in fact, Bill, I think you and I were like, oh, that's kind of cool, right? Well, that's, that's got to be a great port call. 
right? I think it was like the second, maybe third yeah, U.S. Navy aircraft carrier port visit. I think it was just the second one, right, the second. To, uh, to, yep. to, to Vietnam. Yeah. The Vincent went there the year before. And uh, in fact, very early on in my tenure as the under, the, we escorted the ambassador, US, uh, the Vietnamese ambassador to the U.S. and his wife on board uh, carrier down in, in Norfolk. It's the first time that an ambassador had been on a U.S. carrier. And it was a prelude to the visit of the Vincent there, which uh, by all accounts went extremely well. Uh, the, the population of Vietnam was thrilled to have the carrier there. It was the first time a carrier had been there since the Vietnam War. Um, and I think it sent a strong signal to China that um, that uh, we have friends in the region and we care about them and we're, we care about building stronger relationships with them. So um, I think, you know, that, that the plan for the TR was was in place for a long time uh, to have her go go there and, and visit Da Nang and uh, do the same type of visit. So, yeah, that was on the docket. But again, those are decisions that are made. Uh, through the combatant commanders, uh, you know, as uh, secretary of the Navy or even the CNO, we don't have much input into that. You know, we're we're the man trained and equipped people, you know, the Title 10 people. Um, but the operational deployment of the fleet, that's that falls under the hands of the of the combatant commanders. So I, I think they did a COVID assessment and I think Vietnam was relatively low. You know, the risk assessment was that it was still OK to do a port call there. And the pictures came out and um, and it looked like everybody's having a great time. And it was that kind of expeditionary warfare, hands across the water, like you said. Uh, optics to China were desirable. Um, looked like it was a success. And then they put to sea and instantly everything sort of changes. So walk us through how you became aware of the initial COVID outbreaks and then what happened subsequent to that. COVID got on our radar screens back in late January, early February already. Um, I remember I got a call from uh, John Batchelor, who's a radio show host, who called me because he knew some people in Hunan province who had been reporting to him about how bad the conditions were there. And so I immediately uh, got a copy of the book that uh, President Bush used to carry around with him. That is, a, And I can't remember the name of the author, but it basically details everything that happened in the 1918 pandemic, uh, which I, I recommend anybody <laughs> to read about how horrific that was. And so I started thinking about, okay, how, how can we get involved? Uh, we started having meetings, senior level meetings. Secretary Esper used to, was uh, chairing those to talk about how we could assist with COVID. And initially, we took a lot of, uh, a lot of people onto some Navy bases and Army, Army bases installations for people that were coming back from those regions to make sure that they were clear. But we, we established... Um, you know, the CDC established guidelines for us to follow with respect to the ships and how to do that. Um, and we instituted those policies pretty, you know, pretty strictly across the entire Navy. And, um, you know, with respect to the Vietnam visit, the CDC basically said it was low risk. They um, there were only three cases, known cases of covid in Vietnam at the time. And they were in the Hanoi area, which was not near where the ship was going. So, um, and I'm not even sure to this day whether they know whether COVID got onto the ship from Vietnam or whether it got on through other people flying on and off the ship. Um, it's, it's, it's hard to know. I don't know that they've done that forensics yet. I know that by the time I left, we hadn't done the forensics yet. But at that point, it was kind of irrelevant. It was, you know, you had a carrier. We, uh, we were informed that we had... Um, and we had COVID on several other ships as well, uh, not just the carrier. And in fact, the Ronald Reagan 
had uh, had co- had some COVID cases on Ronald Reagan in in Acusca. and um, uh, we we you know we're just following the CDC guidelines with respect to separation and with masks and all that to, to and to to testing. And when we got the information about the TR, um, we we immediately held a press conference and announced that we had this situation because we knew that it was going to be very difficult to keep that information private. So the CNO and I and, and General Berger held, held a press conference that day, generally just to talk about how COVID was affecting the Navy and Marine Corps and that news. As we were headed to the press conference, I was told there were two. By the time I got to the press conference, you know, whatever, 500-yard walk, there was three. And uh, so, um, and, and I knew that we were flying those those sailors off the ship, and that the plan was to to test everybody 100% and see how those results came back, and then the contingency plans then came got put in place to eventually send the ship to Guam. So, in your proceedings article uh, published earlier this month, you wrote, "In the months since my departure from the Pentagon, I've asked myself over and over, with the benefit of hindsight, could I have done things differently? Of course, I could have, but not." But none of us have the luxury of perfect vision, either foresight or hindsight. We do our best with what we know and believe in the moment. We try not to be reckless or inconsiderate in that process. Did you speak to Captain Crozier and Admiral Baker, who is the strike group commander, before making the decision to relieve uh, Captain Crozier? Yes. Well, my staff had been in touch with Captain Crozier. Um, when, when we found out the ship was going to Guam, um, I asked my chief of staff to reach out to Captain Crozier directly and say that I would like to come out to Guam, visit the crew, find out and make sure everything was going on on the ground. I had a relationship with the governor of Guam. Uh, she had been in my office just a few weeks before that. I wanted to make sure that she was comfortable with what was going on. And so we made this plan to go out there. And uh, he, he spoke to Captain Crozier on that Sunday. Uh, this is the Sunday um, that he sent his email. And uh, and uh, my chief spoke to him and, and uh, tried to clarify, you know, whether or not I should come out. And Captain Crozier suggested that I do not come out, uh, that it would be a distraction for the crew at that particular time. And so we sort of waved off on the trip. And, and my chief, Bob Love, had said to him, look, here's, the, here's how you reach the second half if you need to talk to him. Um, he's very interested in what's going on and wants to make sure you guys are getting everything Bob then immediately called uh, the head of the Navy staff, Andy Hypley, who was my former chief of staff. Uh, and Andy was, you know, gave him the full rundown of everything that was going on on Guam uh, to make sure that we got these sailors off. We got a, we got a, a, a clean group of sailors who could man the watches. Uh, we needed to have a three-section watch crew, and, and uh, that would require about 1,000 sailors that we would test, make sure that they were clean, and then slowly bring them on. Because you, you couldn't just pick any random thousand sailors they had to have the ones with the right skill sets as you all know having served um it takes some special skills to to man the watch station on a nuclear power plant and some of the other things that we needed to do so that process was well underway and uh, the best we can piece together the time the time uh elements on this he immediately a couple hours after he talked to bob he sent that email out and um he didn't talk to captain or to admiral baker about it um he just sent it out the, the investigation later found that the doc, ship's doctors had sort of, you know, five days into the crisis had said, basically said publicly that the that the battle against COVID had been lost on the TR. And I think that uh, that that may have spooked Captain Crozier or some other people on the ship. Um, I'm not really sure what was in their minds. Um, they also penned a letter 
that they all signed saying that, uh, you know, suggesting that within 10 days, up to 50 people could be dead on the ship. And, and, um, and at the bottom of this letter, they wrote uh, the final paragraph of the letter said that uh, it was their intent to make this information known to the public, basically so that the world could know what was going on on the TR. So that was the senior, the senior medical officer sort yeah, of the, threatening. The senior medical officer and three or four other medical officers all signed this letter and sent it to, to the uh, chief medical officer of the Navy. And um, when I saw that, I said, I asked the question, I said, why are these guys still on the ship? And, you know, it, it seems like there's like a medical mutiny going on here. And, and the answer I got was, well, they're fatigued and, you know, stressed out about what's happening on TR. And I said, well, all the more reason. I mean, I know how many doctors we have in the Navy. Can't you find five, six, 20 others that we can send out there right now to handle this thing? And um, I just didn't get much of a response. Like so I knew that they were sending a medical team from, from Okinawa, a 20-person medical team, Marine Corps medical team that was on their way. And I think they felt that that, was, that situation was under control. So um, I... I learned about Captain Crozier's letter as, we were, as I was flying out to Los Angeles to see the Mercy. The Mercy had just pulled into Long Beach, and we, we had uh, mobilized her to help with the COVID situation. And as we're flying across the country, my deputy chief of staff, Steve Deal, had showed me the article in the San Francisco Chronicle. And I called Bob Love immediately, and I said, Bob, weren't you talking to Captain Crozier? He goes, yeah, I talked to him on Sunday. We emailed exchange yesterday. He said, you know, he said there was no like hair on fire type of uh, tone from him at all. So I, I was just perplexed. I really couldn't understand what was going on. And so then I finally uh, on that Wednesday. So that was happened Tuesday. And I went next Wednesday, the next day, um, I called Captain Crozier and just had him walk me through what was going on. And he basically, you know, he basically told me that I asked him, in, I said, how do you feel? Do you feel like you've got everything you need? He, he seemed very comfortable that they now had. Uh, something like six respirators on the six on the ship, and another six uh, at this new hospital that uh, had been built out of an old warehouse on Guam. I mean, when I finally got to Guam, what I saw at Guam was unbelievable. Just the the miracle that occurred there with respect to what was put in place for the sailors. But um, he seemed very comfortable that based on the, the statistics that they would have enough respirators that they need if they needed them. At the end of the day, they didn't need any respirators. Um, and I think only two or three sailors were actually hospitalized and they, and they lost one tragically. Um, they did lose one who had some comorbidities, but, um, still a tragedy that we didn't lose anybody uh, because of this. But when I talked to him, I asked him, I said, did you, why did you send the letter out? And he said, well, I, we had just gotten this, a bunch of tests back and the numbers were getting high and I just felt it was time to send up a signal flare. And I just, you know, to me, I just it made no sense to me. I and I, I, I sort of checked that with some other people who had been carrier commanders, and they said, you know, that's not what you do. Um, there are multiple ways to send up a signal flare, or not, you know, a signal flare is an indiscriminate like blast out to the world that you're in trouble. And there are many other ways that I think he could have reached out to include calling me personally. Uh, which was made available to him, and, I, and I'm, I'm sorry that he didn't. Everything I knew about him was that he was a really fine officer um, and uh, a great commanding officer, and the crew really liked him, and it's just a shame that it, that it happened that way. And, and uh, so then I talked to, the next morning, I talked to uh, the strike group commander who literally 
was housed six feet down the passageway from him and asked him, this is Rear Admiral Baker, I said, what exactly happened? And I said, did he ever come and talk to you about the letter before he sent it out? And he said, no, sir, I got it when it showed up in my inbox. Uh, and I said, you know, he didn't come in and talk to you about this before he sent it off the ship to other people and, uh, and through an unsecured man. He goes, no, he didn't. And I said, well, did you ask him why he did that? And Admiral Baker said, yeah, he asked him why. And, and Captain Crozier said that he, he felt that if he had talked to uh, Admiral Baker about it in advance, that Admiral Baker would not have allowed him to send the email out. And I said, well, would you have? And he said, no, of course I wouldn't. Have. And I was like, OK, so that. The, the pieces start coming together that it was sort of an intentional insubordination um, of his command. And I couldn't figure out why. Um, but at that particular moment, I felt like the, the right decision was he, to me, he was not making good decisions um, on a ship of that size in a crisis of the, that size, which had already become now politicized and, and become part of the, you know, the broad media narrative. I just felt that it was uh, that, that he needed to be relieved, and so um, that's you know that's when I made when I made the decision to do it. Well, I just want to make sure we get some of the details right because it does the the details inform your state of mind. Um, so um, again, you've gone through the TikTok pretty good about you know when he sent the email and what he let you believe whether he was covered or not. It seems like he kind of gave you a warm and fuzzy that he had all the resources he needed. And that's what he gave the chief of staff uh, before that. But let's remind the audience in that email, he, he put a couple of lines that, that are what it made it attractive to uh, the, the press. Right. And so he said, we're not at war. And then the line to me, which was, you know, it, it changes a sit rep into a sensational emotional plea was sailors don't have to die. I was disappointed. I mean, the, the two trigger uh, phrases were important to me, but I was more um, I was more disappointed that because the country was was having such a difficult time dealing with this, that the Navy had to get put in the center of it as as an institution and an organization that couldn't handle it. Because I know that we could. I I, I knew that we had other ships with COVID and they were doing fine and they were they were doing what they were supposed to do and it, there wasn't this level of panic or, or or bringing into the public arena the problems on the ship unnecessarily so that was that was a major issue for me uh, i just didn't i didn't you know one of my goals was particularly given what richard's richard spencer went through and um was to try and keep you know the navy out of politics and, and keep it out of the news for negative things like this uh, we have really big important mission to do and the nation needs to know that the Navy can handle it and the Navy is on station and the Navy can do its job. And um, there were just so many other ways that they could have handled this, I think, um, in a more positive way. And uh, I just didn't at that stage, I just wasn't really sure what state of mind Captain Crozier was in that he would have done this. The point about not being at war, you know, I, I, I found that to be a little bit offensive as uh, coming from a, a carrier CEO. Um, just a week before that, I had been up at Dover, um, receiving the remains of you know, two Marines that had been killed in Afghanistan just a week before that. So, you know, their brothers and sisters in arms are at war. And, um, I just felt like that was, um, I don't know, it just seemed like a little bit, um, tone deaf to what, to what was really going on in the world with our, with our people overseas. The other 
question is, was there any demand signal from President Trump? And before you answer that, um, mm-hmm. I remember, and if you can help us with the chronology of the press conferences. So you did one with with General Berger, that was in D.C. Did you do any press conferences on the West Coast before you went to Guam? I forget. Yes. Okay. So, yeah, as we were landing in, in California, um, I I got on a phone call with, with uh, Admiral Gilday and uh, Admiral Aquilino and the senior medical officer of the Navy to talk about what was going on because we had just seen this letter uh, from Captain Crow in the, in the press. And I said, hey, you know, I'm going out there to – I'm going out there to talk about the mercy and how the mercy is helping. And I had three press conferences that were set up, one with CNN, it was with John King and then MSNBC and Fox. And I said, look, I, I'm my impression coming over here at, based on, you know, Bob's conversations with Captain Crozier was that things were under control. Um, it sounds like they're not under control. So you guys need to fill me in on what's going on, because I guarantee you those press conferences are going to be totally focused on the TR and not on uh, the good work that's going on with the mercy, unfortunately. Uh, It took away a lot of attention from some really courageous people who volunteered to go on that ship and go up into Los Angeles to do their work. But um, so and that was the truth. So that's what happened. You know, they gave me some good information on what what exactly was happening and and what was going on on the ground and why we were doing this methodically and why we couldn't just do what the uh, you know, what was suggested in this these this uh, medical officer's letter was that we needed to evacuate the ship 100% of everybody immediately, which I mean, it's just nonsense. And um, for a senior medical officer in the Navy and his team to sign their names to something like that, I just I just was just flabbergasted by that. So um, so yeah, so that's those were the and then the, the next press conference I have was on Thursday uh, when we made the announcement that uh, that we were going to relieve uh, Captain Crozier and. Uh, I tried to be as gracious as I could in that press conference uh, to him and to, you know, recognizing he made a mistake and and uh, the reasons why I was making the decision. But to your question about the president, I had zero conversations with anybody in the White House about this. Um, I know Secretary Esper had spoken to the president about it. I know that the president, I think, had publicly stated some things that he was unhappy about the letter because, of course, he got asked about it. And I knew, and I knew that his expectation was that we were going to do something about it. And I made it very clear to Secretary Esper that there's no need for the president to get involved in this. This is the, this is the Navy's business and uh, the Navy will take responsibility for it. And I'm the senior executive in the Navy. And so I'm going to take responsibility for it. And I so, said the same thing to Captain or to Rear Admiral Baker. So I did ask him whether he felt like after some probing whether or not he felt that Captain Crozier should be relieved. And I don't think he did at first. Um, and maybe he felt some pressure from me. I, you know, I can't say that he didn't. I mean, I was a secretary of the Navy. He was a 07 and, you know, maybe he felt that pressure from me. I was trying not to be that way. I was trying to just lay out the story for him. And, uh, I said, so you think he should be relieved? And he said, yes, sir. I think he should. And I said, okay, well, I'm taking it off your plate because I wasn't going to put a one star admiral um, in the middle of this now, um, because it become it become this big national story, an international story, and frankly, you know, as I told you all before, you know, I was even though I was the senior person in the department, I was the most expendable person in the department too. Um, I was a political appointee. Um, the president already nominated somebody else to take the job, um, and you know, if the heat got really bad, as I knew that it probably would, because it was not going to be a popular decision. Um, then I would go. 
Um, and unfortunately, that's the way it ended up happening. Um, the, the heat became extremely, extremely hot. And um, to the extent that, you know, something you never expect in public service, but it spills over into your family and, you know, your kids are getting threatened and your wife is getting threatened. And, you know, it's it. it you just never know whether you take that stuff seriously or not, but I took it seriously and I just knew it was time for me to, 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 to move on. And, and, uh, I didn't want the TR situation and the COVID situation and the Captain Crozier situation to dominate the Navy, um, anymore. And so I figured if I had stayed there, it would, it would have lingered for more, for more time and it would have distracted the Navy from what it needed to do. And, um, like I said, I, you know, there, I just didn't want to put anyone else in the chain of command in the center of that. And um, so that's why I made the decision. You mentioned that you did not have a conversation with anyone at the White House about this, but did you have conversations with uh, CNO Gilday? Of course, quite a few. Quite and, a few. And, and what was his feeling on whether Crozier needed to be relieved or not? Well, I think his impression was, um, I think his impression was that uh, Captain Crozier uh, that he that uh, he needed to do an investigation. He wanted to do, do a full investigation to determine the facts. And uh, I had no argument with him on that at all. I said, yeah, absolutely, you need an investigation because there's probably more more to this whole story. Um, but at this particular time, I've got a CO and a, on a ship with 4,500 people on it, and it's in a crisis, and he's making really bad choices. Um, and um, so for me, it was... It was just the right thing to do at the time, and um, he, you know, we had some dis- we had some pretty strong disagreements about it. Um, I think that uh, I really implored him to to reach out to the captain himself, to talk to the whole chain of command himself. Um, uh, he resisted me on that, and um, um, but to me, you know, that's why I talked to everybody <laughs> because I needed to know, um, and I didn't really want to wait two or three months. As it turns out, the investigation took like three months or something like that to, to complete. And um, I just didn't think that uh, based on the facts that I understood and, and uh, the information that I had and the fact that I know that we had reached out to him in advance and had offered him assistance, that, which he did not um, did not really take up uh, with us. Um, I felt that, uh, that it, was, it was my decision to make. I think that that gets to uh, one of the first points in your article that you wrote for us. Uh, you, you list out 10, my 10 top lessons from my time as acting secretary of the Navy. And number 10 was don't be afraid to reach down into your organization to talk to people several layers beneath you. So uh, I think what you just said gets gets to that. Right. If, you're, if you don't feel like you're getting all the information that you need, you know, dive down deeper. I don't even think you have to caveat it. And I think you should just do that as a matter of course. Because you just you there are too many filters in an organization the size of the Navy. Um, there's so much separation between the lower uh, the stuff that's happening at the deck plates up until the point where it gets to the level that I was at, was at. So uh, my view was you know get down there talk to people uh, walk around <laughs> go into their offices. Um, it just made it my it was just part of what I I like to do. Um, I did it when I was. Um, you know, I, I would have stand-up meetings in the in the Pentagon uh, when I was the under and as the act as the acting, where you know basically anybody could come every morning, and we'd stand around the table, and no one would sit down. And I just want to hear from people. You know, what's going on? What are you doing? Um, and it's good to have that that eye contact too, which um, you can just 
you can learn a lot by just talking to people and seeing their expressions and um, more so than you can do from just picking up the phone and calling them. And so I tried to maximize my ability to do that. I could. I, I want to get to the, the Guam leg uh, of, of the story. But before we do, a uh, copy that you, you didn't have any direct interface with the White House. I'm just remembering one of the press conferences where the, the president seemed sympathetic to, uh, to Chopper. Um, you know, he's talking about he's a skilled, uh, you know, fighter guy and maybe he just had a bad day. And so it seemed like his the demand signal or his tacit suggestion to, to Secretary Esper may be, you know, go easy on the guy. And then at other times it looked like he, he was angered by the letter. And, and uh, it was hard to read, I think, in, in general where he was on this. Um, so you mentioned you had a lot of conversation with CNO. Did you have any with Secretary Esper on this topic before you oh. uh, launched to Guam? Of course, of course. Um, what was, he, what was his feeling? Yeah, we went and spoke to, uh, so that uh, the morning that I made the decision to relieve him, Admiral Gilday and I and went down and met with the chairman and with Secretary Esper, and we talked through uh, my, my thinking, my rationale. CNO made his his, uh, his views about the investigation clear, which I agreed with, that I felt that we needed to do one. Um, and General Milley was very supportive. He said, look, you know, this is, it sounds like you've lost uh, trust and confidence in this officer. And I said, I have. It's unfortunate, but I have. And he said, well, you're the Secretary of the Navy. You have the authority to relieve him if you want. And, and I think Secretary Esper's view was, you know, it's, it's a tough decision, but it's the right decision in this circumstance. And, you know, we've got your back. And I was like, okay. So that was, you know, that was basically it. That was the extent of it. I didn't have a lot of extensive conversations with him. But I will say that, I mean, it's interesting. You cite the, the president's comments. I mean, that all came to light after my trip to Guam as I was coming back to D.C. And I saw that, and I also saw some comments from the president about how he's good at solving arguments from people, and maybe he'll get involved to solve the arguments between me and Captain Crozier. And I was just, I, my view was like, you know, there's no argument between me and Captain Crozier. I mean, and I certainly don't want the president of the United States mediating a decision between me and a, and, a, and a captain in the Navy. And I just didn't really want to be a part of that. And so, um, and that really did help sort of seal my, <laughs> my, my own view of what my fate was going to be. I just didn't want to be, I mean, it was, it, it basically, you know, I had failed because, um, my whole goal was to keep the president out of it. You know, I just felt like, you know, my, our job in the Navy is to handle our business and to do it professionally. And, um, the president shouldn't have to worry about that. He shouldn't, the president shouldn't have to worry about whether or not an 06 is getting relieved of command. I mean, we relieve, you know, two or three captains every year for things and um, things less egregious than this. And um, so I just really felt like, you know, having experienced that with Richard Spencer and um, having that White House involvement, I just felt it was very, uh, you know, not good for the Navy. And uh, so I just, you know, was trying to avoid it, but, you know, didn't do such a good job. Let's talk about the the Guam leg. So, why did you think it was important to go to Guam and talk to the crew? Because I was responsible, and um, I just felt like I wanted to, you know, for two dimensions of it. You know, I, I just didn't get the sense when I saw on that Friday Captain Crozier leaving the ship, um, and there was a big prep rally for him, and no one's social separating, and no one's wearing a mask, and um, they're sort of cheering him off the ship. I just felt like that they may not have understood exactly the reasons why. And I felt an obligation to go there, not just to talk to them and, and to make eye contact with them and, and make sure that they were okay, 
but also to make sure that everything that I had been told about what was happening on Guam, Guam was actually happening. Um, uh, because, you know, that was, that, that, that was a pretty major effort that needed to happen on Guam to get rooms for 3,700 people on an island, you know, basically, uh, essentially out of thin air, which is what happened in about six days. So I just wanted to go and make sure that, uh, that that was in place. And then I wanted to talk to Captain Crozier. I wanted to talk to him face to face and let him know from me, uh, why I relieved him and, uh, wanted to make sure that he was okay. And, um, I talked to Vice Admiral Miller on the West Coast about a job for him, and uh, I had some thoughts about it, uh, you know, another job for him working for me, and wanted to talk to him about that. And so that was basically the crux of it. Um, those are the reasons I went. And I did, you know, I made it very clear to my staff I don't want public affairs, I don't want any media. This is not a publicity stunt. I don't want, you know, cameras, nothing. We're going to go, we're going to pick up uh, uh, Rear Admiral Sardiella, who's going to go in and take over for Captain Crozier. He had been the former commanding officer of the ship and he was in Hawaii. And so we were picking him up and taking him into Guam and gave me a chance to talk to him about my concerns about the ship and, um, and, uh, you know, his impressions of the crew, you know, he had been in command for two and a half years and Captain Crozier had only been there for, I think four or five months or something like that. Um, I felt, uh, that was, and actually that was a really fantastic move by, uh, Admiral Gilday and, and his team to, to pull Captain Sardi or Admiral Sardiello out of school uh, and send him out there to just sort of settle the ship down. And um, it was exactly what the ship needed, which was a very steady hand who understood the crew and understood the capabilities of the ship and just a, just an awesome, awesome, awesome thing. And I, I give uh, Mike Gilday a lot of credit for that decision. And um, it worked out. It worked out extremely well. I think you didn't hear much from the TR after that. Now you mentioned that you directed no PAOs, no no publicity. However, I will tell you that, you know, no sooner had you unkeyed the 1MC mic when your your comments uh, were launched to the world, right? And in fact, I got a, a sort of a, what looked like a screenshot of uh, the transcript of your remarks from one of the squadron CEOs um, on the ship. And I read it, I'm like, this this doesn't sound like the acting SECNAP. I mean, this, you know, and, and so... You've teed up your intent. Now, specifically, there were some words that were semi-pejorative and, and some ways that you phrased it uh, that, that maybe didn't come off as you intended. Now, certainly, if you think this is an in-house forum where the, you know, the leader of the Navy ultimately is talking real truth to folks who should be sort of war-focused, if that's what it is, then you certainly have an expectation that you can use, let's just call it salty language, uh, et cetera. But it, again, with the benefit of hindsight, do you wish you'd phrased any of that differently? Um, well, that's a good question. And I don't know that I could, well, of course, I mean, obviously, you know, there are certain words that, that came out. Um, uh, we, let me get you some context on this. So I got to, we got to Guam at about two o'clock in the morning and, uh, I sat down and first called Admiral Miller to talk to him about Captain Crozier's future and what we might be able to do for him. Um, I also uh, called my wife and asked her to reach out to Captain Crozier's wife to offer any assistance that we could as a Navy family to them, because I'm sure it was a very difficult time for them. And then I started writing my remarks to the crew. And um, I, I, I leveraged this, a speech that I gave at the Naval Academy a couple of years before their graduation about really about love and duty and commitment and courage and honor. And I felt it was particularly relevant to them. Um, and so I crafted that section of it and, um, and then figured I would just 
sort of extemporaneously talk to them a little bit about why I'd relieved the captain so that they understood uh, my, my purpose behind that. So um, the initial intent, the initial intent was for me to go and talk to them on, you know, I asked, let's get, a, let's get a bunch of the crew on the hangar bay, socially separate them out or put them on the flight deck, socially separate them out uh, so that I can talk and walk around and, and, and tell them what I feel, you know, not with a microphone, just sort of talking. So, um, and they started, I started getting some feedback that they weren't going to let me do that because it was a COVID environment and the NCIS guys were nervous about, you know, me getting sick. And I said, well, and they didn't even want me to go on the ship. And I said, well, I'm going on the ship. I mean, we've got, you know, whatever, 2,500 sailors on there right now and they're there. And so I'm going. And, uh, they said, well, we'll figure out a way. I said, well, look, I want to be able to answer their questions. So ask them to submit a bunch of questions to me in advance. So, um, they went around and started accumulating those questions in the morning. In the meantime, we spent the whole morning running around Guam, looking at everything that had been done on Guam. And it was unbelievable. Uh, they probably had 900 to a thousand sailors and Marines and civilians and some airmen from uh, Anderson Air Force Base down, creating basically 3,700 beds out of thin air for these sailors to come off. Uh, they had created an app that they could monitor their temperatures and report back. They had built an entire command center to monitor the transportation of the crew off the ship. They had a bus schedule. They had three meals a day coming to these rooms. I mean, understand, this was done in like four or five days out of nothing. Um, then uh, I went and met with the governor of Guam, um, and she told me basically that, uh, you know, she had made 1,700 hotel rooms in her four- and five-star hotels available for the crew. And um, she told me that, that uh, she said, well, I have to be honest that, you know, when Captain Crozier's letter came out, which was the previous Monday and was made public in, in the news, uh, she had to go back and renegotiate with her constituents uh, and her legislators, legislators um, to allow the TR crew people to come into their four and five star hotels. Because all of a sudden, everyone thought, all right, there's going to be 2,000 infected sailors coming into our hotels. We have to bring people back to work. Guam doesn't exactly have the best medical uh, uh, medical facilities, and they're dealing with COVID as well. And she said it cost her two or three days of extra time to get those hotel rooms ready because of the leak of that letter, because of the, and not the leak, but the contents of it uh, and the way it was phrased. And um, this is what I tried to, you know, convey to the crew a little bit about, you know, why you don't use the media as part of your chain of command. Um, so, after that, we went down to uh, to the pier, and I had an opportunity to sit down and talk to all the senior officers on the ship, and we sat at some picnic tables. Everyone's got the masks on, and and um, you know they were just. It was clear to me that um, that uh, they didn't quite understand the level of the crisis back at home and the politics of it, and how their ship was now in the center of that controversy, and. Um, I told them, I said, look, you know, I'm going to go talk to the crew now. Does anyone have anything that they want me to say, any advice or anything? And like not a single one of them said a word. Um, they basically stared at me and, and um, uh, even t turned to the XO who was sitting to my left. I said, XO, do you have anything? And he said, and he just shook his head. And I said, okay, well, I guess I'm on my own here. And uh, they decided, they said, so they said, uh, and before I got down to the, the pier, my chief of staff, Bob Love, said, hey, Tom, here's, uh, 
here are the questions. And he goes, and he goes, I really don't think you should read these right now. And I said, why not? He said, well, you're just not going to like them. And I said, okay. So I started reading a few of them. And a lot of them, uh, some of them were hostile. Um, and, you know, understandably, you know, I'd, I'd relieve their CEO. They probably didn't like me very much. Um, but some of them were just a little bit, uh, I guess, disturbing in the sense that they were picking up on facts that had been portrayed in the media that weren't true. They had been, you know, you know, one of the one of the questions that just really to me was, you know, amazing was it was a question directed to me. You know, how many how many deaths of the uh, of sailors on the TR would have been acceptable to you until you got us help getting off the ship? It was that kind of tone. And so it was very disturbing to me, and it showed to me, demonstrated to me that the leadership of the ship um, uh, was not communicating good messages to the crew. And and um, so, um, you know, another one cited the one about, um, you know, we, the, the question about, you know, why, are, you know, we're not at war, you know, we're not, at, you know, we're not at war. Why is it so important? You know, if, why is it so important for us to be out here on the Westpac for a cruise if we're not at war? You know, those types of questions. And and um, so. Um, look, I understand, you know, a lot of these, a lot of these sailors are very young and, and they're in a crisis. And like I said, everyone's trying to figure things out on the fly. No one really knew how deadly this virus was going to be. And, and so people were scared and, you know, fears, fears, uh, fear can be debilitating. And, um, and so, uh, I just wanted to get on, on the, on the, uh, ship and, and talk to them. And so, um, the, the only thing they they made available for me was, and now granted, this is one of those things where you say, well, could you have done things differently? Yeah, I could have done things differently. I could have just told them, no, I'm not doing that. I'm going to go talk to the crew. I'm going to go walk around the ship and I'm going to talk to the crew. And, and, uh, um, but I just wasn't insistent enough at that particular time. Uh, and that was a big mistake on my part. Um, because you can't get, you can't get a sense for, you know, it's the same thing. I think I, I talk about that in one of my lessons learned about taking off the mask and, you know, it's, it's it's literal it was literal there because you you know with that mask on you can't tell what people are thinking you can't really see their faces you can see their eyes but you can't always see their faces and you can't you can't really empathize with people as well and um but it's there's also another mask it's a metaphor also just for terms of your 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 rank and your privilege and you know those types of things you got to drop all that uh, particularly when you're talking to people who are afraid or confused and that's why it was a mistake uh, from my perspective to not insist on going around and just talking to them and, and trying to build some relationships with some people and some of the sailors on the ship and let them yell at me or let them be tough with me in a private setting. But, you know, they, they said, oh, we got this clean room for you. Come on the ship. And as I'm walking up the uh, up the, the, um, the brow to get on the ship, I see a bunch of sailors on the flight deck looking down at me and they're they're not looking happy. So I was like, well, you know, I can go in there and I can, you know, I can, you know, soft, soft shoe this or I can just sort of let it rip. And I just decided that I was going to give them a give them a firm message with respect to the, the profanities that came out. I mean, none of them were a, a directed at a person. I think I used the S word twice and the F word once referring to a hypersonic missile or something like that. Um, but, you know, I had been told a story once by a one of my classmates from the academy that his first master chief on his ship told him, you know, if you want, if, if you want to get a crew's attention, if you don't use the F word, they're not going to take you seriously. So, um, you know, I know that's not necessarily true, but, um, 
And I would love to say that that's why I did it because I was so deliberate with it. And so, you know, so thoughtful about that's what I was going to do, but I wasn't, I would just, you know, I started talking and, um, and, uh, and then I think the whole situation, the, a lot of the words that I had mentioned about, uh, the commanding officer and the naive and stupid comment, I think were totally misconstrued. It was very clear to me that uh, Captain Crozier was neither naive nor stupid. Um, and in fact, that this was a deliberate thing that he did and, um, and, and intentional and insubordinate. And I think he knew that he was going to get in trouble. <laughs> um, so, um, you know, I, you know, of course, when you use words like that, people will take them and, take them to mean something that you didn't mean. And um, I certainly didn't mean to suggest that he was naive or stupid um, because we don't make, put naive and stupid people in charge of aircraft carriers. But in some sense, that was a little bit more disturbing about it for me um, was that it was deliberate. And so that was my concern. So when I finished giving, you know, the talk, um, you know, I wound it up with this, this you know, discussion about, about love and, you know, your, your obligation to love the people that you're privileged to lead and focus on them and don't focus on your, your CEO so much. He's got bigger responsibilities, you know, focus on the people that are underneath you, you know, take care of, you know, E5s, take care of the E3s, you know, so on. Keep your, your eyes focused on that. Um, and, um, and I had written, you know, I'd written these vectors every Friday to the entire fleet and vector, Sector 18 that previous week was all about this. You know, it was I had the TR people in mind when I wrote that. It was all about how unpredictable things happen, and you know, you just have to adapt to them. And some people become heroes uh, in those situations. So, um, so that was it. So we 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 finished talking to the crew, and uh, or I finished talking to the crew, and sort of when I left, and I could, you know, of course I had. I, I can't say that I knew it would be recorded. Um, but the message wasn't just for them. It was for, it was for the fleet. It was for the other captains out there who needed to understand, you know, why this particular CO, uh, was relieved. And, um, and also to all the crews about, you know, this message of, you know, duty and, and, and commitment and, and love and what that means when you're in the service and when you're asked to sacrifice. And, um, so that's what I wanted them to know. I had thought someone would transcribe it at some point and get it out. Um, I didn't think it would be live streamed <laughs> and I certainly didn't think it would be live streamed, uh, with uh, members of the crew commenting and cursing and stuff like that in the background, which I heard is what happened. I'll be honest with you. I never even listened to it until December 24th of this year. Um, I listened to it for the first time and was kind of surprised at how calm and matter of fact I sounded. Um, I had read the transcript before, but I just, you know, uh, it was sort of interesting to me that from my perspective, I sounded pretty calm and matter of fact, um, I didn't sense that I was screaming or yelling. And of course the media portrayed it as the profanity laced, um, you know, histrionic tirade. And, you know, I, I don't think that's what it was. Um, were there some poor choices of words? Of course, um, there were, and, um, of course I regret that but i don't regret the message at all not at all and um you know so even when i you know when i start like the first time i actually read the transcript i was like surprised myself that i'd actually use those words because it's not something i normally do um never would do that in the office never would do that anywhere i just i don't know maybe it was just uh having a flashback to being on active duty or something on a carrier that uh 
caused me to do that. But, um, and I'm, of course that's a joke, but I'm just, uh, you know, I just didn't know I was caught up in the moment and, uh, and I was emotional when I was, uh, not angry, but I was emotional and I wanted to make sure that, that people listened to me and heard what I had to say. Well, so it has all the elements that, and, uh, and you express your frustration with both the media and with retired flag officers that are now pundits who, when they were in the seat, would have hated that dynamic. That's that's the hypocrisy you point out. Um, but now it has all the elements that the press is just going to go crazy, broadcast television particularly, because here's the video of him being cheered off down the brow. And then you come out there and again, your comments were misconstrued and now you're calling the captain stupid in front of his crew, who this beloved guy who is just trying to do the right thing. And it leaves out the steps that led up to your decision. I'll tell you a word. It's very interesting because that uh, the investigation, the formal investigation, to the best of my knowledge, there were only four people in the Pentagon who actually had any contact with Captain Crozier um, before he was relieved. That was me my chief of staff, my senior military aide, and another admiral who sat in on one of the calls. Not one of us were even interviewed for that investigation. Not one of us. So um, you can draw whatever conclusion you want from that. Um, I was sort of sitting by waiting to finally get a phone call to be interviewed for it. Never, never even had a chance to be interviewed for it. No one even put us on the list or thought it was important. And we were the only people that actually spoke to him. You know, I had spoken to personally every single CEO of every installation and ship in the Navy that had COVID cases on it. They all had my personal email. They all had my personal phone number uh, to call me if they felt like they weren't getting what they needed. Um, and so. Um, well, why, you know, why is that? What, what, that seems sort of amazing to me because you, you were a political hot potato or something at that point. What's, what's that all about? How can you run the facts to ground? if you don't involve one of the principals in the investigation? I don't have any comment for that. I have no explanation for it. No one ever called me. No, you know, when we, when they announced the uh, uh, findings of the investigation, um, I, I didn't, I got reporters calling me, telling me that, Hey, they're going to, you got anything to comment on this? And I'm like, I don't even know what you're talking you're like about. Like it's over. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I didn't know what's going you know, on. I had no idea. And, and you know, but that, that does remind me and Ward of our conversation with uh, Vice Admiral Alcoin, you know, after the seventh fleet collisions in 2017 and then the comprehensive review. And he said something similar, which was as the seventh fleet commander at the time of those two collisions, he was not interviewed or asked anything or any input on the comprehensive review or the, the SRR. Your last item with the Q&A or the second to last is, do I still believe I was correct in offering Captain Crozier redemption and a chance to continue to make meaningful contributions? Now, you actually sent your staff a text where you were actually laying out what that would look like specifically. Can you tell us about that? So that Thursday night after uh, the afternoon after I relieved him, so that evening I was at home and thinking about um, thinking about the situation, obviously, it was really hard to take it off your mind. And I sent a text to my staff saying, um, you know, novel coronavirus, novel idea. Let's assign Captain Crozier to my staff immediately and have him be the guy uh, that has that daily liaison with the other ships in the Navy and installations who um, are experiencing COVID. Because it was my impression that this was going to go on for another nine to 12 months and could have a lot of negative impact on the Navy. And frankly, at that point in time, he was the most experienced guy dealing with COVID 
and probably learned a lot of really good lessons um, that he could apply and help these other captains navigate their way through that. And so I made that suggestion. And uh, when I went out to Guam, uh, after I spoke to the crew and that faithful, <laughs> very faithful uh, discussion to the crew, not one of my greatest speeches, but um, I went and talked to Captain Crozier and um, and I sat down with him. And I, you know, in the interest of protecting his confidentiality, the confidentiality of that discussion, um, I'm not going to say what he said to me, but, you know, if he wants to do that someday, that's up to him. Um, but what I first asked him, I asked him how he was feeling because, you know, he had been diagnosed with COVID and uh, he said he was fine and just, you know, mild, you know, flu symptoms. And then I said, hey, look, I just want to let you know, I wanted to talk to you face to face and let you help you understand why I relieved you. And um, and then I sort of laid it out for him. But I also wanted him to understand what the ramifications were, whether he was careless or whether he was intentional or whatever, that putting his ship and making his ship the center of a global controversy in, a, in an era where the entire nation was struggling with this unpredictable event, this pandemic, uh, really jeopardized his crew and uh, jeopardized uh, sort of the integrity of the Navy. Um, and I think he understood, I think he understood that, you know, like I said, I won't speak for him, but then finally I said, Hey, look, you know, um, my wife's is, trying to reach out to your wife to offer any support that we can as a Navy family. Um, I spoke to Admiral Miller. He's got a job for you in San Diego. So once you get better, we're going to ship you there. But I said, look, my door is always open to you. If you want to come and work for me on my staff, I need someone to deal with this COVID situation. I need someone on my staff to deal with it. Um, and if you want to come and do that in Washington or do it from San Diego, I'm totally open to the possibility for that. And, you know, my view was, look, you can still continue to make strong contributions to the Navy. Um, you know, you don't, it, it took a lot of work and a lot of heroism to get to where he was. He made a mistake and a mistake that made me feel uncomfortable keeping him in command of that ship at that moment. That was it. I just wanted to steady your hand on the ship. That did not mean that I felt like, you know, his career should be over. Now, you know, the Navy has different ways of thinking about that, you know, but, uh, I'm just trying to get them to think differently. <laughs> I wanted them to think differently about, people and the value of people and how you can use continue to use them and continue to make contributions and um you know he he, he was at the pinnacle you know, you're in 06 and you're a carrier commander that's you know that's that's a pretty good that's a pretty impressive route and i just didn't want him to feel like that was the last thing that he could do to contribute to the navy because i felt like he could continue to contribute to the navy and so that's what i offered him and we said goodbye. And the next thing I knew, I got on the ship and uh, apparently I called him naive and stupid. And that's <laughs> sort of the end of the story. So um, but I also made a commitment to him that I would never trash him in the media and, and I won't trash him in the media. I think that, you know, he did what he thought was the best for his crew. I have no doubt about that. Uh, I just think it was a mistake. And um, uh, I don't think he had any. I mean, you'd be surprised some of the, the uh, motives people have. <laughs> impugned upon him about why he did what he did. And I just don't believe any of that. I don't think there was anything nefarious or anything. I just felt like he felt like he needed help. And that was the only way he could think of getting it. And, um, just a bad judgment error. And at a time where I needed someone there who could make better judgments than that. And that's basically it. And then you got back uh, to DC and, and in short order, and you've already described why you resigned, but then you, you resigned. Yeah. And I, I resigned. Uh, yeah, I just I got home. And like I said, I, met, I saw some of this 
media reporting about uh, about President Trump and, and him wanting to get involved. And then many members of Congress, some of them who I had actually really good relationships with, were, you know, saying some extremely negative things about me in the media. And one of the things on my list of 110 things was to stop treating Congress like a board of directors and start treating them like your customer. Um, and I had always felt like, you know, those guys, the members of Congress were our customer. They provided us money to deliver something for the American people. And so I reached across the aisle and tried to develop strong relationships with everybody over there. But it's unfortunate that in this environment, either, you know, I was misunderstood or they felt like some of the motives that they uh, would imp- they would sort of put on President Trump or put on me because you know, whatever. It's partisanship. It's the game that, that happens in Washington. Um, and uh, I just felt like I would be just kind of fighting for my own reputation uh, in the job. And I, my public affairs guy is a great guy. He said, hey, you know, we can, we can develop a whole strategy for you. You know, you can come out of this. You know, no problem. I was like, I don't want the Navy spending a single minute of their time trying to do that for me. I mean, it's just, it's just a waste. Um, they have much more important things to do. And so it became pretty obvious to me that, that I needed to resign, and, and, and so I did. Well, Mr. Secretary, thank you for your time today. It's been great talking to you and getting your side of the story that uh, a lot of our readers and listeners have been thinking about probably since it happened uh, you know, just about a year ago. So the article in Proceedings, which is a Proceedings online-only piece for our readers, if you look for it in the February issue, the print issue, you won't find it. So on our website, Lessons Learned at the Helm of the Department of the Navy by the Honorable Thomas B. Bodley. Uh, Mr. Secretary, thanks again for your time. Thank you. That'll do it for this episode of the Proceedings Podcast. Remember, victory begins at the Naval Institute. We'll see you again next time.